I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. The last time Congresswoman Karen Bass was on the podcast, the California Democrat was under serious consideration to be Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate. Today, the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus is leading the effort to turn the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act into law. She's championing voting rights legislation, and she's pushing for equity in access to the COVID vaccines. Bass and I get into how things have and have not changed in the 30 years between the beating of Rodney King and the killing of George Floyd. We talk about how Republicans are attempting to set up minority rule, and we even talk about Harry and Meghan. Hear it all right now. Congresswoman Karen Bass, welcome back to the podcast, your fourth return. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Before we get to the serious the serious matters, we're going to talk about police reform, the voting rights bill, um, and some other things. The last time you were on the podcast, you were in the running. You were being vetted and talked about as a potential vice presidential pick. Obviously, former Senator Kamala Harris got the pick. She is now vice president of the United States. But I'm wondering, just in reflecting, what did that mean to you to be under serious consideration like that? Well, first of all, every day going through that process was completely surreal. I mean, at different points in time, I would stop and think, vice president of the United States? <laughs> Just surreal, difficult to believe. It's been very exciting to see her in the role. I think she has done a uh, fabulous job, and I look forward to see what she'll do throughout her tenure. The point of the question was not to focus on her, but to focus on you. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's surreal. But just sort of personally, what did it mean to you? Come on. Well, I mean, it was a huge honor. I mean, I felt very honored by it. And then just all of the excitement that it generated uh, at home and people coming up to me and talking to me about it. And then also there was the exposure. You know, you know that when you enter into politics, period, it is going to be positive and negative. And so there were a lot of parts of my life that I really hadn't talked about before. And so having all of that be open and out there in the public. Now, after the fact, I'm very glad. It's like, okay, everybody knows everything about me now. <laughs> <laughs> right. You are an open book. But the other thing that going through that process did is that, I mean, you already came to Congress with stature. You're the former Speaker of the California Assembly. But after having gone through that, you're elevated. You are an even bigger voice on Capitol Hill. And so let's talk about some of the things you're working on. You are the lead on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, where one of the big issues is this issue of qualified immunity. One, what is it? And two, why don't Republicans want to do anything to either get reform it or get rid of it? Well, there's two parts of the bill, qualified immunity and, and the ability to prosecute an officer are the two parts of the bill that allow us in the future to hold officers accountable. You remember when, the, uh, when Derek Chauvin was killing George Floyd, he was looking at the camera at one point with his hand in his pocket. He wasn't worried about a thing because he felt that he could act with impunity. So what qualified immunity essentially does is that it prevents individuals like George Floyd's family, for example, from suing an officer 
because they have immunity. And it's not really a law. It's something that was constructed by the courts. So here's the way it works, Jonathan. In order for George Floyd's family to bring a lawsuit, they have to find a case that is exactly like what happened to George Floyd. So they have to find an example of another officer that held his knee on the neck of somebody for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That resulted in death for the suit to be considered legitimate. Now, what I just described is ridiculous. That essentially means that people who've been victims of police abuse have no recourse. So you could imagine if you go to a doctor and the doctor makes a very serious mistake, but the only way you could sue for damages or you could sue because you've been hurt is if you find another doctor that made the exact same mistake. That makes no sense, which is why actually qualified immunity is up at the Supreme Court right now. It is possible the Supreme Court could rule that qualified immunity denies individuals of their right to uh, for recourse. And so then the, the Republican pushback is it's going to be open season on police officers and they'll be too afraid to do their jobs. Not only that, police officers around the country will quit. No one will want to be a police officer again. So it's hair on fire, which is actually interesting because there are Republican, predominantly Republican organizations, libertarian organizations that believe that qualified immunity shouldn't exist for anyone. So it is not just a straight Republican position. There are differences amongst Republicans and even Republicans in the House. So a lot of people believe that qualified immunity should be reformed. So for example, you know, why have it that you have to find an exact case? You know, why not be able to prove that there is a reason for you to sue? Now, a lot of people are concerned that the individual officers being sued will bankrupt them. But you know what? There's something called insurance. And then there's also the departments in the cities. And there's ways to protect the cities from going bankrupt if it's a small city. So there is a way that we can reform qualified immunity where we can actually hold officers accountable. But the other part of the bill, Section 242, which basically says the only way you can prosecute an officer is to prove what was in his mind. So for Derek Chauvin, we have to prove that he really put his knee on the neck because he was he wanted to murder George Floyd. What we say in the bill is, I don't care what's in his mind. What he did murder George Floyd. It was reckless. Anybody knows if you put your knee on somebody's neck and hold it there for nine minutes, it's going to result in death. So that's what our bill does. It lowers the standard. That's why communities get so upset, so distraught when case after case after case, charges are not filed. Well, that's the reason why. It's a structural problem. And when you say lower the standard, lower it from what to what? Lower it from willful to reckless. Uh, willful to reckless. What's in his mind? Reckless means who cares what's in his mind? It was reckless. Right. So a couple of things. One, what happens, say, if the Floyd family settles with the city um, in the idea of qualified immunity? Does that, if they do that, does that mean that they can't sue? Or is that just a matter of the settlement stuff? Yeah, that is a matter of settlement. That that depends on what, okay. what agreement they come to. And then the other thing is, we're talking about qualified immunity, but that is 
a, a provision in a lot of police union contracts. And I'm wondering, what does the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, if anything, do to counteract some of these provisions within police union contracts, which also wall off police officers from accountability? Absolutely. I wish that we did address that in the bill. We do not. However, there are provisions in the bill that I'm sure would raise questions in a contract. So, for example, one provision in the bill says that an officer has a duty to intervene. So all of those officers that stood around when George Floyd was being murdered, they had a duty to intervene and they didn't. Now, I don't know. In some police union contracts, they might they might say that that they don't that, you know, you you can't interfere. Uh, one officer can't interfere what another one is doing. But we on a federal level cannot dictate what would be in a uh, contract. But I do believe the duty to intervene is something that uh, the unions probably would oppose. So now that the bill's been passed and it's heading over to the Senate where it'll actually get some action now that the Democrats are in control in the Senate, you are working with Senator Tim Scott of yes. South Carolina, Republican of South Carolina, the only black member of the United States Senate um, there, oh. Republican, yes, Republican. Um, what is it, how are those talks going? There aren't negotiations that are happening right now. What I will tell you is, is that in the House, there are members of the House that are uh, having discussions, a bipartisan member of the House in the Problem Solvers Group. So we're looking at different things that might be uh, successful over in the Senate, and of course, including Tim Scott in those discussions. So if we're able to look at some of the key issues and come up with ways that it might be more amenable in the Senate, uh, then negotiations would begin. But it wouldn't be accurate to say they have begun at this point. So then, once there are conversations, I mean, the House being, you know, firmly in Democratic control, you can get stuff passed that'll get to the Senate. And then, you know, the word here is negotiation. Are there things within the bill that you are willing to say, you know what, in order to get this overall bill passed, I'm willing to have a conversation about X, have a conversation about Y, have a conversation about qualified immunity. What can we do to get to some agreement on this? Is that possible? Well, um, well, I mean, I mean, I certainly believe that it is. I mean, you know, when you know that when a bill passes the House and goes over to the Senate, most of the time adjustments are made. But let me just tell you that um, it is critical that we do a bill that is substantive. We cannot do something that's superficial. You know, what I feel is at stake now, Jonathan, is what is happening in Minneapolis. Because the thing is, is that in Minneapolis, this trial is happening right now. Now, having gone through the Rodney King trial, now we're not gonna call this the George Floyd trial. This is the Derek Chauvin trial. He's the one that's on trial. But having gone through that experience, I know that we have to prepare for the best outcome and the worst outcome. And we have to make sure that we have a bill that demonstrates to all of those people that we told to go out and vote, this is what you get. We will deliver. We talked about police reform as being high on our agenda, and the president has said that from day one. He has put racial equity and systemic racism 
front and center in his administration. He talks about it almost every day. And when he does talk about systemic racism, he always talks about policing and it was a commitment that he made. So I really feel like the stars are aligned right now. And, uh, and we're working not just to look at what we wanna take out of this bill or water down in this bill, but what we wanna add to the bill. And I do think that there's issues that we should add. For example, mental health crisis. Mm. You know that a lot of shootings are because police officers sent out to deal with people in a crisis. And a police officer is not the person that really should go out. Obviously, if somebody is violent or they are holding a hostage or there's weapons involved, I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about is that most people with mental health issues, you can prevent them ever going into a crisis if they get proper treatment in advance. And that's not something, you know, police officers complain all the time. I went to the academy to deal with crime, not to deal with health, social, and economic problems of society that you don't want to put resources into. And then when things deteriorate, you expect me, police officer, to come and clean up the mess that policymakers left. And you know what? On that point, you know, we had a situation in Rochester, New York last year, Daniel Prude, whose family called 911, not because they wanted the cops, but because they wanted help. They wanted help for Mr. Prude, who was going through something, and instead, instead, he's dead. Right, or, or the young man uh, in Colorado who was just walking down the street, minding his own business, and the police decided, called paramedics to inject him with right. medication. I, as a former health professional, it's unheard of that police officers can prescribe medicine. So there's a lot of things that are done uh, around in policing, but it's because we don't have national standards or an accreditation process. So your barber has to be accredited, but, you, but the person with the gun does not. 18,000 police departments in the country, no national standards, which is why in one city a chokehold is unacceptable and illegal, and in another city it's, it's legal. And so that's what we're trying to do, is to raise the standards of policing, provide grants to communities so they can begin to re-envision public safety, and then also hold police officers accountable. We ban chokeholds. We ban no-knock warrants. You know, Breonna Taylor was killed a year ago. And um, if the no-knock warrants had been banned or heavily restricted, she'd be alive today. The person that they were looking for when they kicked her door in was already in. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Please custody. 
You mentioned Rodney King. Are you surprised that in all, how many years has it been? 30, 40? 30. 30 30 years. Jonathan, we passed the bill on the 30th anniversary of that videotape. And so in those 30 years, just talk about your observations, your thoughts on how far we have come or not since the whole nation watched that grainy video that was shot by that person on his terrace from a great distance, which unleashed a whole lot of conversations and other things in the country. But progress when it comes to policing? Um, I don't think it has been uh, transformative, that's for sure. I think we've had ebbs and flows. So, for example, you know, years after Rodney King, you had stop and frisk. I mean, I don't even know. I know that there's been at least, and I have to say at least, Jonathan, 100 people killed by police since George Floyd. So if you're going to ask me (laughs) what has happened in 30 years, hundreds of people have been killed. I think the only significant change has been a level of awareness of the general public. And I always draw the analogy with the civil rights movement that what had been going on in the South with Jim Crow and beatings and attacks by dogs had been happening for generations. But it wasn't until the cameras, the news revealed what was happening in the, in the protests, the marches, that the whole world then saw the brutality that existed in the South. And I think after Rodney King and the advent of cell phone cameras, Jonathan, how many, how many cell phone tapes have you seen of people being beat, of kids being, pe- I mean, the nine-year-old girl that was pepper sprayed, the six-year-old girl that was pulled out of the car with her mother and, and siblings mm-hmm. laying on the ground because they thought the mom, you know, stole the car. Walter Scott, who the anniversary of his murder is in is in a couple of weeks. He was literally running from the police, but the police didn't know, the police officer didn't know he was being taped. So you remember he went and tried to plant a gun on him. So there have been hundreds of these tapes of brutality. And I think the most significant change is an awareness. I actually think in a lot of ways, we've gone in the opposite direction since Rodney King, because over the last 30 years is when you have the police unions emerge that go from state to state to state to tighten the laws so that they are never held accountable. There's no consequences for brutality and for uh, and for murder. You know, the other thing that's coming up, um, at least the stories that I've seen in the Derek Chauvin trial, the police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, is that we're seeing another pattern, and that is they're putting George Floyd on trial. So his toxicology report is is out there, and we're going to be talking all about the person who died and somehow justifying his being killed. You know, luckily Rodney King wasn't wasn't killed, but they put him on trial during during that trial. Well, you know, you you, uh, have that, and it's interesting because the immediate... Uh, reflex is to look and say, well, well, what did that person do that led to them being killed? That the person had to have done something. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just say the person did, like Dylan Roof, who walked in a church and killed nine people. And a few hours later, when he was arrested, it was this peaceful arrest. 
He had the weapon on him and they brought him lunch on the way home. So to me, it's a way how black people, Latinos, uh, people of color are dealt with. Even if the person had committed a crime, Michael Brown, maybe he stole some cigarettes. George Floyd, maybe he passed a counterfeit 20. That should result in an execution. No trial, no arrest, just an execution. So think about that. What is the point of the criminal justice system? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? Well, the reality is that standard applies to certain people in our country and other people do not get the benefit of that. Let's talk about something else that you are working on. I'm mindful of your time. So I want to talk about um, vaccines. You wrote with uh, Mark Morial and one other person, if memory serves, about vaccine distribution and how it's not getting to the places it needs to get, considering who's been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Uh, talk about the op-ed that you wrote and why you all felt it was important to get your message out. Well, I am deeply disturbed by the narrative that's out there that uh, African-Americans in particular won't take the vaccine because we're hesitant. And why are we hesitant? We're hesitant because of something that happened 70 or 80 years ago. The reality is, is that for those people that are hesitant, they're hesitant because of the way the medical profession has treated Black people, period, including today. But to focus on the people that are hesitant, as opposed to the 67% of Black people who want the vaccine, is the wrong focus. Anytime you have the way you access the vaccine online, you have a structural barrier. So a lot of people, especially people who are older, have difficulty making the appointment, staying on the phone or, or online, if they have access to being online. So how about this, Jonathan? Why don't we focus on the people that want the vaccine? Because guess what? They're either related to or friends with people that are hesitant. My concern is, is that with all the focus on hesitancy, it becomes then an excuse to say, well, black folks didn't get the vaccine because they didn't want to show up. They were worried. And, uh, and I don't want that to be an excuse. Access is absolutely the problem. In Los Angeles and in many other communities, you have white individuals who have probably never set foot in the inner city before rushing to get vaccines in areas where African-Americans and Latinos live who are having difficulty getting the appointments and the vaccines are being taken up by people on another side of town. What we need to do is distribute the vaccines to community clinics, to faith-based, to churches, to community organizations. I have uh, in Los Angeles, a member of the city council, he does phone banking like a political campaign. Mm -hmm. He does phone banking in a zip code. He tells everybody in that zip code, show up, on Wednesday between 10 and six, the vaccines will be available. 80 to 90% of the people that show are, are African-American. The point is, is that people outside of the neighborhood didn't even know the vaccines were taking place. Mm -hmm. So I think the focus needs to be on access and it needs to be access in a variety of ways, not one size fits all, sign up online. The other things that some clinics are doing is, you call the clinic, the clinic will register you online, but you don't have to spend all the time or if you don't have access. You also can't access the online registration 
uh, from a smartphone in a lot of cases. So accessing online is an immediate barrier. And what we did in the Congressional Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, Asian and Native American caucuses, we went and found our counterpart researchers outside. They conducted a poll. Actually, it was Cornell Belcher that conducted the poll. That's where the 67% statistic comes from. 67% of African-Americans were more than willing to take the vaccine. Focus on the 67% they'll get the other one. Cornell Belcher, who is also a, a, a K-pop alum from, from way back. He's been on the podcast. But you know, just to get personal here, you, you know, in Maryland, we had Governor Hogan, who said um, that basically it's because of hesitancy, because Black people don't want to take the vaccine. That's why they're not getting it. And my mother lives in Maryland. And, you know, I... In our editorial board meeting, I got a little hot and I said, you know what? That's insulting. Because even though my mother at the beginning, when the vaccines first started coming out, she said, you know, I'm a wait. I'm gonna wait. But unbeknownst to me, she started looking for to get the vaccine and couldn't get an appointment, couldn't find one. And her neighbor upstairs was the one who got her an appointment. And as my mom, um, as she was, before she got that appointment, she was frustrated and, you know, okay, my mom, you know, she's a 79-year-old black woman, born and raised in North Carolina. So she views the world through, through sometimes a certain racial prism. And she said something that stuck with me. She said, um, I bet if I'd put W, I'd get an appointment. And I looked at her for white. Oh, white, right. And yeah. and so like her mind is because she sees the news. She goes, How are all these people getting these vaccines? And I can't, and she's she's got a computer. She's trying to to register online. Thankfully, um, you know, my husband Nick has been getting up every early every morning and looking for appointments and found one for her second for her second shot. So we don't have to worry about that anymore. But that is also one sort of feeding into a lot of people's frustrations that they're watching they're they're watching people come into their neighborhoods, go into other neighborhoods where they don't live and don't look like the people who live there and then, you know, hey, look, I got my shot. But see, what we have done historically in our country is because we don't know how to talk about race and we don't know how to address it, we blame the individuals. And early on in the pandemic, it was like, well, the reason why all the black people are dying is because they have all these health problems. And the reason why they're not getting the vaccine is because they're worried about the Tuskegee experiment. No, how about there is a barrier that you need to deal with so they can get the vaccine. It is insulting and it becomes an excuse, which is why the mayor of Detroit had the reaction he did. Do you remember he got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and he initially sent it back? Because he said, oh, oh right. That's right. You're, sending, you're sending us the one dose vaccine. So we'll give we'll give the black people one dose because one, they're hesitant and then they're not reliable. Now, and that just feeds into the paranoia that you were describing that your mom has. Well, if she put W down, maybe it would be different. I know the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is fine. All three of the vaccines are fine. But why would you do that? You need to you need to provide all three vaccines to everyone. 
Mm -hmm. Don't then say, well, we're going to send this vaccine over here because you guys have issues. No, don't do that. All that's going to do is just feed into what people are already suspicious about. You want to talk about Harry and Meghan? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Considering the Duchess was my constituent. Oh, that's right. That's right. I was only joking. But let's but let's talk about this. Just just your reaction. I do want to talk to you about HR uh, one. But since Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, was a constituent of yours, were you shocked by what she told the world? What they both told the world? No, I, you know what? I felt exactly the same. I heard Oprah, somebody asked Oprah that and her response, and I would agree with it. No, the only thing I was surprised was, was that she said it. Okay, let's talk about HR1. And that would um, do all sorts of things to make it easier for people to vote and will sort of counteract a lot of the things that are happening in the states, particularly in Georgia, where they're trying to suppress the vote and keep people, particularly African-Americans, from voting. It passed the House. It's over in the Senate. But the possibility of that bill getting meeting the 60-vote threshold of filibuster is like slim to none. So what do you tell um, the American people, and particularly Democrats, who want something done to safeguard their vote? What do you tell them about what's about to happen to that bill? Well, first of all, I say a couple of things. You know, as you mentioned, it does a lot of things. And it is possible that there are parts of the bill that might pass the Senate. But let me just remind you, we do have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act coming up. And remember that when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, they put the responsibility back on Congress to respond to several things. So we are in the course now uh, of getting uh, the record established. You wouldn't think you would need to have the record considering there's so many grotesque examples right. of voter suppression that we, uh, it is an embarrassment in the world where we run around telling everybody have, how to have elections and then we don't allow you know, certain people to vote here. So the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we think will come up maybe in the spring or the summer and that's the real deal, because that would essentially stop what is going on in Georgia, because it's just outright voter suppression. So we have to get that done. And that's going to be an issue, because it's going to take 60 votes. And at some point, something is either, either there's going to be a break, or the filibuster is going to have to be considered. Right. And I, that was going to be my, I just wrote down in my notebook, filibuster as my, as my follow-up. Um, as a political tactician and as someone who is a speaker of the California Assembly, you, I'm wondering just sort of tactically how you view Democratic colleagues in the Senate in the Senate should go about this, because at a certain point, you're right, there are only so many Democratic bills or bills coming from the House landing in the Senate and being thwarted before Democratic constituencies start, you know, pounding the table, wondering, what are you doing? And so I'm just wondering, for, to your mind, when Republicans like Mitch McConnell say, well, watch out, Democrats, you know, be careful what you wish for, because, you know, you'll be back in the minority and you're going to rue the day that you did this. You know, Obamacare, I think he uses the example, Obamacare would have would have been toast 
were it not for were it not for the filibuster or one of those bills. I mean, is that a legitimate a legitimate concern for Democrats to have in stopping them from removing the filibuster? Well, it is a legitimate concern because just think about it. The last time we removed the filibuster, I mean, that brought us, we're going to suffer for generations for that. I mean, that's why uh, Mitch McConnell was able to confirm all those judges. That's why we have the Supreme Court in balance the way it is now. So it is absolutely a concern. But here's what, uh, what I'm interested in. Apparently, there are ways to do some reforms that doesn't completely eliminate it. I don't know what all of the items on the menu are, but there are a variety of ways to address the filibuster. And um, and I do think that it might come to a line in the sand moment where we don't have a choice. So what really worries me about the voter suppression stuff is that they are essentially setting it up for minority rule because they're worried about their voters because Republican voters are the minority. I mean, right. you heard the guy arguing before the Supreme Court. He was bold. He just said, well, we have to change it. Otherwise, they'll keep winning elections. You heard, you heard Trump say that over and over again. The problem with voting in America is that too many of the wrong people vote. And the wrong people are people that look like you <laughs> and, and me. And, and, and that's, that's their reason for wanting to suppress the vote. And the only voter fraud that you know we've we have really discovered, hard voter fraud, has been what Republicans have done, <laughs> not, not masses of people who were mailing in fake ballots. You know, to hear the president on the phone saying, fine votes for me, twice. Right. I think that's called... <laughs> Voter voter intervention. Mm -hmm. Talk about voter fraud. Right, voter fraud. One to the the um, Georgia Board of Elections person, and then the wasn't it the Board of Investigation? The Georgia Board of Investigation it was the new phone call that came out of him trying to strong arm that investigator. Last question for you, um, um, so you can go back to helping govern our nation. Um, History, with the exception of one time, and that was the midterms of 2002, history holds that the party in power in the White House loses the majority or loses seats uh, in the House in those midterms. In the 2020 election, Democrats won, held the House, won the White House, have the Senate, but the majority in the House it shrunk instead of increased the way everyone thought. How concerned are you that Democrats will not be able to hold on to the majority, especially since those elections not only have history that they have to push up against, but also redistricting? Oh, well, add in redistricting to what we were just talking about in terms of um, a voter suppression. So that, that is absolutely my concern about them preparing for Republicans to always be in charge through redistricting, gerrymandering the seats, as well as voter suppression. That's the only way. A true democracy means they can't win. So their only way to win is essentially to hijack the process through redistricting or suppressing the vote. So I am very, very, very concerned what we have on our side, and it's a sad thing to have on our side, 
but we have the madness within the Republican Party right now, the internal war that's going on, and them to decide, are they going to be a cult or are they going to be a political party? Are they going to allow a cult of personality? Are they going to allow Trump to continue to lead their party? Will there be a split? Will someone go and and reclaim the party, or will there be a split and a new party formed? Wow. Um, and when you've got a party that runs the range from Senator Mitt Romney to Congresswoman without committee assignment, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that's a wide, that's a wide berth. Congresswoman Karen Bass of the great state of California, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 